Okay. This is Art Town, and I'm your host, Justin Baker. This month, my guest is Michael Oatman, collage artist, teacher, collector, installation artist, a guy who wears a lot of hats. Although when I talked to him, he had no hat on. Uh, I went over, I guess it was a week ago now, um, over to his house, uh, studio, workspace, whatever you want to call it, um, Oatlandia, I think, as I referred to it um, on the promo image. And I guess that's a name that his friends had given it. I didn't know. Uh, he refers to it as Falling Anvil Studios, which uh, doesn't roll off the tongue as easy as Oatlandia. But he was very kind. Um, my daughter and I were showed up, and uh, my daughter was along for the ride. And we had this uh, amazing tour that was um, so informative and uh, so generous in a way. It was really incredible. And I think it set up the interview for um, some questions. I think in the interview, I, I do say going in, I don't do a lot of prep. Uh, of course, I know the art, um, you know, the art is what gets me interested. Uh, so I do uh, look at it, of course, and I spend some time with it. But I typically, I don't like to do too much prep beforehand. Uh, but for some reason with, with Michael, I, I thought I had to look around a little bit and get a, like a kind of, um, uh, a kind of a, a base uh, for uh, who, uh, who he is as an artist or, or a person, maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why I felt like I, I had to have that. But um, the interview started, and I had some questions, uh, a couple in mind to get us going. And um, there was this part about, I, I think because um, Michael has uh, been such um, like a, a kind of a known artist in, in the area for so long and produces these amazing works of art that... Um, are just really thoughtful and exquisite. So uh, there was this this thing about, I guess, what I had read. Um, you know, his uh, his early, you know, time up in Vermont uh, as a high school student making films, and I, I just somehow that just really it it kind of tickled me, and I, I was I was wondering, kind of going in, well, how do you get to the steps, like what are the steps to, uh, what are the steps that occur that kind of put him where he is now? So that was that was really my my only um, my only uh, thoughts kind of going in. And uh, of course, as I said, his tour, he was so gracious and so uh, you know he shared so much about. Um, where he lives and how he works and what he's thinking about, that all of that continued in the interview. And um, yeah, it was a it was a lot of fun. And uh, it kind of made me um, uh, 
um, I don't know, made me appreciate him even more. So here it is, um, Michael Oatman and I talking in um, in the uh, the mess hall of uh, Falling Anvil Studios, uh, or as maybe it's commonly known, Oatlandia. Um, take your pick. Or how about Michael's house? That's a, that's a good one, too. But uh, first, before we get to uh, Michael, you know what's, what's uh, I, and <laughs> no one's, no, I don't think anyone's noticed, um, but I get notes, and uh, right, maybe I, uh, no one's reached out to me and been like, hey, what the hell? Uh, but, uh, you know, typically, and I did this with CollarWorks Radio, um, somehow I'd kind of tie in a song to the artist or something that was like making me think or something. Um, I'd spend a lot of time thinking about um, a, uh, a song to, to start the, um, the interview off. But uh, I had gotten a lot of notes from uh, the production team at Art Town that it was, uh, it was taking too long to get to the interview. And here I am now, just yammering on. Um, so I cut the song out last time. And I don't know if anybody noticed, but, you know, maybe somebody's happy. Um, but uh, this this time, uh, so, okay, so what I did last week was I had like a little, just a, like a tiny musical, very short interlude of uh, some guitar strumming or some, I don't know what it was, where I found it. But uh, this... Uh, this month, um, you know, um, we're going to start out with some frogs, uh, a recording of some frogs behind my house uh, for like 10 seconds. So hold on tight. Um, Michael's going to come right in, steaming ahead, um, and he's going to, you know, satiate our thoughts for, you know, a collage uh, a collection of ideas, um, an archive of brilliant thoughts. But we're going to start off with some frog noises. All right. Um, here we go. Have a listen. Michael Oatman speaking from Outlandia, a.k.a. Falling Anvil. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah, you yeah. sound great. Okay. Well, uh, well, thanks for doing this. Thanks for agreeing to do Art Town. My pleasure. I've been uh, <laughs> following it for quite a while, Back in even back in the old days. <laughs> yeah, as uh, Colorworks Radio. Um, so I didn't really have an agenda to, like, talk about um i had a few things i thought we could discuss um i had actually most artists i interview or artisans i don't really do a lot of research or as particularly if they i shouldn't say that i do some um but i'm kind of just like responding to the things you make um that have interested me over the years 
Um, but uh, I was curious. There's there's one moment if we could talk about when I when I, so I was reading a little bit uh, some other interviews you did um, or discussions, um, and there was a, a moment like where you talked about uh, when you were in high school you were making films. Is that right? <laughs> Am I, That's right. Yeah. So I was kind of curious about the the young Michael Oatman um, going from that, uh, from Burlington, right? I grew up, uh, I was born in Burlington and uh, uh-huh. went to school in Williston, Vermont, and then high school in uh, Heinsburg, Vermont, which was a very large, what we call union school. So five towns oh, okay. feeding into one high school. Oh, okay. Um, interesting. So like, um, so that moment from you're making films and then you end up at RISD. So I was kind of curious about your, like what got you interested in are, or going to RISD, was it to make films or was it to do something else? You know, if I had thought about it for 10 more seconds, I might have gone to RISD for films. <laughs> uh-huh. but, but when you say I was making films in high yeah. school, I mean, I made three little Super 8 movies right. with a buddy named mm-hmm. Mike Laws, who eventually uh, did study um, television production. Uh, I think he went to... Um, uh, Ithaca College. But um, Mike and I really came together through two loves, two shared interests. One was um, music, particularly mm-hmm. around uh, bands like uh, Santana and prog rock and some mm-hmm. punk music. Uh, but also, really, I think the stronger bond was through comedy, mm-hmm. uh, listening to you know, comics records when they came out. And so we had this idea that we would make little humorous films. And um, uh, two of them were called The Worst Movie Ever Made and Son of the Worst Movie Ever Made. (laughs) And the third unfinished film was sort of a Robert Ludlum type spy film called The Esophagus Exchange. Um, pretty funny. I think probably based on the Reinemann Exchange, which was a popular novel of the day. But um, we uh, translated um, Monty Python skits into visuals, you know, things from the records, which were audio only. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we wrote our own skits. Um, and I think what got us some attention was that we would... We made the decision to sort of skip classes for a whole day and screen them like throughout the day for anybody who will want to come and see them. And so that didn't go down well with my teachers, obviously, but the students really enjoyed them. And and I would say about 25 percent of our efforts were around kind of spoofing stuff from the school. So they had a very specific audience uh-huh. for at least a part of the material. Yeah. But um I think if you read some of those interviews, you learned that I would make props for these movies, Mm. uh, like magazines that would be in a waiting room. Mm -hmm. And so I would take Time magazine and rearrange the letters to make it say emit Mm -hmm. or um, in one. I think the funniest instance, my mom subscribed to a cooking magazine called Sphere was sort of like the, the sphere of cooking, the world of cooking. Yeah. And uh, I rearranged those letters uh, to make herpes. 
So you'd see people in a dentist waiting room reading Emmett and Herpes magazine. And, you uh-huh. know, it wasn't the point of the scene, but mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, it was a way to get some sort of Easter egg kind of laughs. And um, uh, I won't say that was the origin of my interest in collage, but it was certainly where I understood collage to be a kind of agent of humor more than mm-hmm. anything else. What was your... Like, what was your, um, so you're doing these, uh, pretty like ambitious projects as like a, a high school kid, you know? And when yeah, I, it's a lot of work to make uh, film. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I say film, I, I'm using it loosely as I think you would, you know, as a high school kid making something. Right. Um, but what, what, like, what made that step then to to go to RISD? What did you think you were going to do there? I'm curious. Sure. Well, um, the and let me just clarify that we thought of these, or at least I did. I thought of these as comedy first, movies second. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a you know we weren't even using the nascent video technology. I mean, we yeah. were doing Super Eight and having to record audio to match it up, and we get out of sync. Um, so there was a lot of there were a lot of steep technical challenges to overcome for in the end what was a very you know modest accomplishment. Sure, but uh, I thought I was going to go to RISD to become a graphic designer. Okay, um, I never took art in high school. We weren't required to. We had to take shop or um, home economics or art courses. Um, but I was always in the art room hangout with Ruth Furman, the art teacher, and uh, really loved what she made. And um, but for some reason, uh, maybe I was maybe it was arrogance, like since I was the kid who drew all the time, I don't need to take an art class. Mm-hmm. But what I did uh, was I drew posters for school plays, and uh, or at least entered the contest to design the posters. And sometimes mine were selected. Probably more often than not, they weren't. I drew a comic strip for the school newspaper, the Crusader Chronicle, okay. which was often taking mad magazine uh, stories and repurposing them for people in school, like the soccer team or the hockey team or school bands. Mm-hmm. One time I made the horrible decision to mock in print uh, the AV guy, Steve Smith. And he responded the following week with a cartoon of his own in which I was um, uh, being fed to baby robins by a mother robin. Oh, my so God. So I was, uh, I was a, um, a Mike Oatman-headed worm okay. being fed. So this is the punishment for, for satire. Yeah. Um, you know, getting better than you gave. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, my understanding was that Graphic design would be like drawing posters. It was really ill-informed. Yeah. And when I went to RISD, um, I, uh, as a freshman, uh, everybody takes the same courses. Mm-hmm. So drawing, 2D, 3D, philosophy, English, and, um, and art history, actually. And so I had a, a transformative art history course. And I've mentioned this before that For some reason, for just one year, they um, did Janssen's, but they accompanied Janssen's with reading texts of the period, so literature of the period. And then when it became, when notation became available, we would hear the music of the period. So to me, this was a multidimensional way to learn art history. 
they stopped doing it that way after my year. But um, the deal, the die was cast. You know, for me, uh, I came back home for Thanksgiving, I think, and said, I want to be a painter. Mm. And my parents were like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what about the, 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 the money-earning capacity of a graphic designer? And I said, well, you know, um, uh, this is really where I feel my calling is. And I made an agreement with my folks that I would take um, a graphic design course over the winter term, which was like six weeks between Christmas and the start of the spring semester. And I took a typography course from Malcolm Greer, who was one of the great um, typographers. And his company did all the publications for the Guggenheim Museum. Mm. And I eventually worked with um, Bill Newkirk, uh, one of his associates. And, you know, it turns out I loved typography, but um, I, I wanted to be both the client and the maker. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, as a graphic designer, you're really just the maker. Right. Um, and uh, so I wanted the content to be all my own, and I figured the best way to do that was through painting. Through painting. What was it specifically about that immersive year of art history that, that like, like, was there, like, can you, like, pinpoint, like, oh, well, that was, that, like, really turned me around? Well, uh, if you think about how the internet now delivers uh, a deeply dimensional experience, including the dimension of time and Mm -hmm. uh, sort of the rapid way that you can access things. This was like a pre-internet internet course. So, you know, I was reading Sir Gawain in the Green Knight Mm -hmm. and looking at Quattrocento paintings Mm. and listening to Gregorian chants, you know, like all within, you know, the same sort of time frame. Yeah. And uh, it was a way to vividly be uh, 500 years in the past and to be um, kind of confronting the the, the power that a non-literate, person must have experienced stepping into, you know, a a church in Rome and Mm -hmm. seeing a Caravaggio painting of the martyrdom of St. Matthew, Um, the kind of Sturm und Drang of, you know, that, I mean, I remember that painting, you know, vividly, Mm -hmm. and I remember seeing it first in that art history class. Mm. And so um, the, uh, I had never taken an art history course or really an art course in high school. But I had studied history, and I loved history, yeah. and I was, you know, I did a lot of writing. And, um, you know, the courses that I excelled in were the humanities. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really, uh, to my great disappointment, uh, I was not cut out for the math that was needed to become a scientist, which was my childhood ambition. Oh. So, um, uh you know, I really struggled in math. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, ironically, I'm deeply interested in it. Yeah. But back when um, you had to memorize your multiplication tables and keep lots of, and this is in a pre-calculator era, keep lots of um, formulas in your head, yeah. I just, you know, it wasn't my, I didn't have the capacity for that. Yeah, pre-calculator Right, exactly. <laughs> kind of but I was a great at, uh, you know, I had a great visual knowledge and I absorbed mm-hmm the lessons of television and, and these 30 second films called advertising. And Mm -hmm. I was really interested in, 
um, in that medium. And again, as a way to deliver comedy and as a way to kind of understand what was going on in the world. So was an avid reader of the newspaper every day from the time I was in about fourth grade. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so I was assembling a kind of humanities-based uh, worldview uh, that was in some ways um, a reaction to not really having the stuff to be a scientist. Mm-hmm. But ironically, now a lot of my work is, of course, about science. Yeah. I use its methodology. I critique science. I sort of I'm interested in the romanticization of it and the world. Um, so you were like open for the. You were like primed for the the art history in oh, a yeah. way, and that was like that that. The way it was um, relayed to you, like you know, touched you profoundly, and you were you were you thought like this is something I could respond to. I, I, yeah, it was. Uh, I was ready made for it. It yeah. was uh, deeply visual. Um, it uh, was also, um, I think, again, an exception that year. It wasn't just Western art history. Mm-hmm. So we were looking at what was happening in. China, uh, and we were looking at what was happening in Africa. And of course, the origins of this course were 30,000 years ago in Lascaux. And, right. Um, it's such and, an interesting way to, to present it, like all the, like the arts together, because like so many times they're all like in, in, in a course, like they're kind of marginalized. But of course, these people were hearing the music at the same time and, you know, reading, you know, and it's like, Wow, you know, it's really, it's interesting. Well, I think that I I was primed for this, too, by um, some pretty extraordinary events that were on television. Uh, One was, of course, Cosmos. Uh That was hosted by Carl Sagan. And it was the talk of, uh, it was on once a week, I think. It was the talk of the school and of my parents and community members uh, the next day. Mm -hmm. And then the great British science presenter, James Burke, uh, had two series called The Day the Universe Changed and Connections. And oh, Burke man. was the British equivalent of Walter Cronkite. He was doing the play-by-play, if you will, of the first moon landing for British mm-hmm. audiences. And so because of his capacity for communicating complex ideas clearly, uh, he became a great success in, in, in Britain. And then when PBS started airing these BBC productions, I just ate them up because mm-hmm. Burke would start out with something like medieval storytellers, like free range storytellers, jesters, jesters, lute players, and take you somehow through the jacquard loom and then finally the computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why it was called Connections. Yeah. And uh, or talked about uh, maybe it was in the day the universe changed, talked about the influence of the longbow mm. on warfare and, uh, and technology and, uh, you know, colonization. And so uh, I, I guess I was interested in an art that was uh, an art of assembling mm-hmm. things, uh, history, science, communication, um, and... Uh, 
again, I don't know how I arrived at painting as the the right vehicle for that, but I ended mm-hmm. up studying painting as an undergrad uh, there and then as a graduate student at the University at Albany. Oh, you continued that at UAlbany? Yeah. I, it was really um, almost by accident that I started making installations, but... Um, my my thesis show, my MFA thesis show featured um, wallpaper that I had screen printed parts of my self-portrait into. Uh, and those fragments of my self-portrait were broken out as a pattern for a bed that was in the installation. And my parents were in the bed at the opening. Hmm. Um, oh, no. And... Uh, um, you know, there's another weird thing that our son's getting us into. Yeah. But I had um, I had been assaulted uh, in Troy um, during grad school, and I went to the police and filled out a a complaint, and then I sat down with a an identikit artist. This is a guy who back then used facial features on sheets of transparent plastic yeah. to assemble a suspect's portrait. Now, of course, it's done with a computer and it's full color. But we're two hours into this process, and at some point he says to me, you know, this guy looks a lot like you. And I said, well, okay. So I went to your chief, and I said, I'm doing this art project. I have been describing myself. (laughs) (laughs) So the resulting portrait was for this thesis show. Um, So it's called um, Identicate Self-Portrait by Detective D.F. Swan, Troy Police Department, 1992. And that was the basis for the wallpaper pattern and for the bed sheets. And so um, so in a very short order, also narrative and personal history mm-hmm. had entered into my work at a time when I was wondering if painting was the sole way that I should be delivering information. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in the end, I, I was a painter for about a decade, mm-hmm. but... Increasingly, the work was more and more uh, geared toward what I would call context-specific context solutions. Mm-hmm. In other words, it was really about what what's the medium that I need to use to deliver this. And I really go back to that art, art history course, and I mm-hmm. uh, as a kind of the permission slip for uh, kind of going off the range and deciding, well, this would be better as a film, or this would be better as a musical composition or as a, a series of prints or drawings. So you felt in some way like to, to make the switch, like you, you kind of felt like you needed a permission to, to do that. Like, was that, well, I didn't like know any an better artist. when I was a freshman. Yeah. As I made my way through the painting program at RISD, for instance, uh, my junior year, I wanted to make a film and I, did not get any support from my painting faculty about that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, and the film professors weren't that interested in me either because I was not their student. Right. But I figured out a way to make a film called Methods for Drowning, which was sort of like a, um, uh, an, in, an industrial film. Uh, it wasn't really about how to make someone drown. It was sort of about being overwhelmed by images. But there was a lot of found footage that I used. Mm-hmm. found film, 16 millimeter film, and I shot it in 16. Uh, There were scenes with me uh, in various kind of surreal situations around Providence. Uh, It was really very much, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was akin to Vertov's Man with a Camera or um, 
Uh, Rauschenberg made an early film in which he kind of cut up footage from a canoe trip and rearranged it in a manner that we would now recognize as maybe a video that's closer to like a kind of hip-hop way of using imagery. I think Joseph Cornell also did a film called uh, Rose Hobart, which was footage of an eclipse intercut with footage of a film star. Mm -hmm. And so uh, without really knowing those sources, I too was doing a lot of remixing. In fact, uh, I think my senior year in high school, I bought a Yamaha four-track recorder because I was very active as a musician. And uh, for several years at RISD, I was making a lot of music with, I guess you'd say, sampled sound. Right. Um, And so, uh, yeah, I mean, kind of tying it back to that art history course, um, it just, I don't know if there was, I made a direct connection at that time, but I knew, or I sort of felt rather that um, if you can teach art history this way, in a multimedia fashion, maybe one doesn't just have to be a painter or a sculptor to be right. an artist. Maybe yeah. I could try a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. And and when I looked around at my fellow painters, I thought, wow, these people are really creating very coherent bodies of work, and I'm not. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm working in a lot of different mediums, and it made me very self-conscious for a long time, uh, and then finally... I learned to embrace that way of working within a project mm-hmm. rather than within a medium. Yeah. I think that's it. I, I, to me, it's like when, when I think about art school, it's like one of the, the most, at least for me, because I, I switched mediums a lot mm. early on. Uh, like I went to be a, a painter and I was like, I'm, this doesn't, there's something I'm, I'm missing. And um, to, to me, it was like you, you have to be able to give yourself permission to to like just do it, like kind of just switch or, you know, be comfortable in saying like, well, I'm not a painter or I'm not this or, you know, sometimes the, the definition or or the the labeling of it is what's debilitating as an artist, sure. you know? Well, I think also, too, with um I mean, frankly, being surrounded by some brilliant painters, who many of whom are still making painting, and 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 I would say that for the people that I was closest to, their work has been a real evolution of what they were working on in college. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very impressive to see the arc of the work. Um, I think that I wasn't as willing to make a lot of bad paintings uh-huh. as some of my colleagues were, and so when I discovered collage. For real, like freshman year, mm-hmm. and I could work very quickly, mm. uh, and I could make big bodies of work. That seemed like a gift, and mm. <clears throat> also discovering artists like Max Ernst and Hannah Hawk, right, and people who had also produced huge bodies of work in collage, um, and who did lots of other work in lots of other mediums. Uh, it, it seemed like the Dada artists were a, a sort of gateway drug for me, too, because mm-hmm. they were wildly experimental, um, maybe not as market-driven as a lot of other painters at the time, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and willing to kind of buck art history in the way that I was you know, both simultaneously learning uh, a kind of his master's voice version of art history and at the same time confronting 
the Dadaists who kind of wanted to burn the museums to the ground, metaphorically. Right. Um, it seemed like holding those two things in the balance, being deeply interested in history, and yet at the same time, new technology, the computer was emerging at that time. I mean, my, I remember my friend Brian Kane spending months making a 30-second computer animation hmm. and just being knocked out by how beautiful his project was compared to a lot of early computer art. Mm -hmm. um, he had really been paying attention to art history and wanted to kind of quote it and work with it. And I, too, found that I was really excited about being in dialogue with some of history's you know, greatest artists. I mean, it's, there's a kind of arrogance to that that only comes from being 19. Right, yeah. But I thought that, uh, for instance, when I... Well, how did you think you were going to be in dialogue with them? I'm well, curious. for instance, I made a series of collages that I was super excited about. And then a student or a teacher pointed out to me that Max Ernst had made these collage novels using 19th century engravings. Mm. And they were exactly like what I was making. <laughs> exactly. Uh -huh. I mean, the same sort of surreal cant to them, the violence, the humor. And for about 10 seconds, I was like, oh, I really thought I had invented something new here. But then that gave way to, wow, uh, 70 years separate our projects, or 50 years at that point, maybe separate our projects. And I was having similar thoughts as this great master. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've said this before in interviews, but Max Ernst really was the uh, <clears throat> spirit animal for me in terms of, okay, it's okay to be wildly inconsistent, mm -hmm. to be experimental, to, uh, I mean, of course, the rub is that he was also a great painter. And uh -huh. I sort of never got to that status yeah. with painting because I feel like I had one year uh, after grad school where I was really making terrific paintings. Um, but it wasn't sustainable for me because I had, by that time, really, and I didn't have a word for it in, at, at RISD, but I start, and it was only a few years earlier, but I started making installations. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, I called them things like still films or environments or maximum collage. Right. And these were terms that I think I needed to invent for myself to say both, not only am I not a painter, I'm not making installation in the way that this term is being used. Mm -hmm. um, so, Well, how is it different? I'm curious. Well, like when you say the term being like, so like, um, well, at the time there was very, there was a lot of um, what I think was termed scatter art uh -huh. that was being made, Barry LeVay and people like that. And of course, um, <clears throat> Donald Judd. And there were a lot of installations that were about accumulating material, but there was no kind of narrative. Okay. And I was really interested in narrative. I think my earliest influences were really reading and novels. Mm -hmm. and, and so I was doing research in archives pretty quickly, pretty early on, and <clears throat> making my fictions or my take on that history through devices that I loved from painting, like allegory. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, you know, I, I, I really felt like my installations were some sort of giant still life mm -hmm. that you could move around in and see things from multiple angles, much in the way that maybe the Cubists intended. Um, so I was still thinking like a painter. I was thinking a lot about mm 
of flow of color and scale change. Uh, and uh, so when I tumbled onto the idea that I was making installations, it was really my senior year at RISD. I made a, a very ambitious project called Study for a Camping Trip, which was an eight-foot square painting of two figures in sleeping bags that had sort of been hit with probably like radiation from a thermonuclear blast. So they were two kind of cold wax paintings of, of um, sleeping bags, and then using an acetylene torch, I had kind of laid in the smoke drawing of skeletons. Oh. And then there was an awning, a tent awning, coming off that painting, parallel to the ground, with two tent poles anchored in three-by-three three, um, containers of grass and sand, and then the tethering lines were anchored in two more pieces of boxes with grass and then with tent stakes. And there was uh, two speakers behind each um, figure in the painting playing a kind of loop sound of crickets that I had recorded. And then there was a big um, movie spotlight that was aimed at the painting 24 hours a day. Uh, so it was up for a month in this kind of vault space in our painting studio, the bank building. And I didn't know that it was an installation. Mm -hmm. uh, I understood it as a kind of, uh, if I look back, I maybe thought of it as expanding the territory of a painting. So it's sound, mm -hmm. it's um, stuff from the real world, it's making a space under which the viewer can pass under this canopy to, to get up close to the painting. There was even the smell of the acetylene that lingered and the cold wax. And so study for a camping trip wasn't uh, very developed in terms of what it would mean for me next. But uh, it kind of startled me that I would make a painting this way and would want to make a painting this way. Uh, but the whole thing happened very quickly, and everything about it was very specific. You know, the boxes had to be certain proportions. I needed a certain kind of grass. I wanted metal tent stakes. Mm -hmm. um, and later, when I went on to study painting at SUNY, it took me a while to get back to that urge of expanding the territory of the painting. Coming off, yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Why do you think it took so long? Or what? Oh, I'm actually curious about two huh. things. <clears throat> so you're at RISD and you you're making collages, right, all the time? Or no, I'm making collages to make bigger paintings to make, of them. Oh, okay. So, so I'm making they're kind of like collages, sketches. and I'm blowing them up, and. I'm sometimes silk screening mm -hmm. uh, old engraving images onto the canvas. Okay. Um, I'm learning how to do things like make my own gesso and rabbit skin glue canvases. Um, I've often said that I felt like I was building paintings rather than painting them. Mm. And so... Because of the, the labor that you're putting yeah, the into labor, the little pieces. Yeah, I was interested in... I mean, you know, we, we got this as I said, this really in-depth <clears throat> art history course. And part of what was talked about was, you know, when painting left the wall and went on to wooden panel and then mm -hmm. at a certain point in the Northern Renaissance went on to canvas. Um, I was interested in those technical mm -hmm. jumps 
for because of what they meant in terms of content. Mm. Uh, I mean, the world is developing new materials and, and cloth is being produced in huge quantities. And it wouldn't be until Impressionism that paint, uh, you know, leaves the hands of the artist in terms of its manufacture and, and it's being made by a third party and put mm-hmm. in tubes. But um, I was intrigued by the, the, the short jump from the painter's studio to alchemy to the sciences. Mm. And so those, um, those underpinnings of art making uh, seem to have much more range and potential when you said, well, okay, I'm willing to work in any medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yet, uh, I still didn't have the wherewithal to say, okay, I need to go to grad school for this kind of post-painting operation. Uh, I need to go to graduate school for time-based media or, mm. or you know, installation art or post-studio practice. They didn't really have that term in 1986. Right. And, or maybe they did. I just, it hadn't come my way yet. So uh, when I was applying to grad schools, I looked at three programs. Bennington, which had, took zero to two students a year. Uh, Carnegie Mellon. Which and Bennington and Carnegie Mellon were also schools that I had applied to for undergraduate school. I thought I was going to be an engineer at Carnegie Mellon, which was a crazy pipe dream because again I didn't have the, <laughs> the math. math. Yeah, um, but I thought I would be a writer at Bennington. Oh, funny. and and RISD was um, again I had this misguided notion about what a graphic designer did, but the three schools that I applied to for graduate school were Bennington again, Carnegie Mellon again, and then the University at Albany because uh, a newish friend. Um, in Vermont, because I moved back to Vermont after after college, after teaching at Phillips Academy in Andover for a year, I moved back home and got a job as a sign painter. And while I was doing that, I invited the artist Barbara Zucker mm-hmm. to my studio, who was the chair of the art department at UVM. Uh, you know, she's a purported, a rumored guerrilla girl right. and a fantastic sculptor and um, one of the most serious people I've ever met. And she suggested the University at Albany because Mm. she had sent a few students there who had done very well. Neil McGreevy, uh, who owns McGreevy Pro Lab, had been a student at the University of Vermont. And and I got some input from a few other people. And um, so, again, I applied to those three schools, got into all of them, and decided I really didn't want to be in a program with two students at Bennington. Mm-hmm. Especially since one of the students was a guy that I had gone to RISD with, oh. and um, who drove me a little bit crazy, uh-huh. and so I did not want to be in the woods with this guy, you know, for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that in the end, SUNY uh, offered me a full ride and a teaching fellowship, <clears throat> and. Because I had taught for three years already at RISD and then at this prep school. And so I really couldn't have afforded to go to graduate school unless it was, you know, right. a, a freebie. And um, and I think Barbara, you know, really sent me to the right place. It was not a huge program. The teachers were terrific. Mm-hmm. I had great peers once again. Um 
Uh, and I had another transformative art history course with Roberta Bernstein. Hmm. Uh, and I wasn't, you know, Jasper Jones is one of my favorite artists already. Yeah. Uh, but I had no idea that Roberta was his closest confidant and favorite writer. And so landing in her art history course was fantastic. And then I took a, a writing course with Ken Johnson. Mm -hmm. I think that was at the College of St. Rose, actually. So um, once again, I made it into a small program with... Uh, I think um, a more evolved sensibility about the current art world than, than was at RISD. Mm -hmm. RISD was really a kind of dialogue with classical art and art history in a way. Um, and even though I think a lot of amazing artists have come out of RISD, Kara Walker, Julie Maritou, et cetera, um, we weren't really that engaged with the graduate students at the time. And um, and as I said, I had a very strong group of colleagues at RISD. So to, to land at a place where um, there was more interest in contemporary art and criticism and, and contemporary art history was really great. Mm -hmm. And I think it's what I needed more than what I thought I needed, which was just time to make art. Right. I had been in the woods of Vermont for two years working as a sign painter during the week. I painted tombstones. I had a lot of weird jobs. That's a weird one. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I had become a sign painting apprentice just at the moment when computer cut vinyl was coming into play. Yeah. And so the guy who hired me, Henry Kirshner, sort of had me on the hand sign painting routine, and he was doing all the vinyl. Uh, but this was a guy who was a master painter and, you know, he could pinstripe a van, you know, a 10 foot line without a ruler. Mm. And uh, so I ended up painting a lot of backgrounds for signs and, uh, you know, he was a great letterer, but he wasn't a good image painter. And so I did all that work. Gotcha. Uh, in, a, in an unfamiliar medium, I was working with one shot, mm. which is an enamel sign painter's paint and it's very unforgiving and... Mm -hmm. The colors have been sort of predetermined to be, to work really well together. So if you have, you know, a yellow sign with maroon lettering and then a black shadow on or, or gray shadow on it, those colors play really nice together. Um, you don't really mix that paint in the way that you mix oil right. paint. Right, it's a completely example. different skill. Yeah, I, I mean, imagine. there's like 40, I forget, you know, what it was yeah, back yeah. then, but um, uh, he wanted me to very much stay within the coloring lines of using those colors. and mm -hmm. But he also had me do a lot of vernacular sign making. Like I made signs for bookstores that used real books um, in kind of physical arrangements. Mm -hmm. I made, um, did some carved signs. My dad had been carving signs and I learned a little bit of that. Um, uh, never any of this stuff to get really good at it. But again, it continued to whet my appetite for what what's possible in mm -hmm. making an artwork. You know, I I now have a new set of skills. Right. And um, I had thought coming out of RISD that I might enter into mo uh, the Museum of Natural History's diorama making apprenticeship, which, 
you know, to this day, I sort of wonder, hmm, you know, that would have been a, <laughs> a really great career being in New York City, making dioramas, very competitive to get into. I also thought after working with Henry that I might be a pro sign painter like uh-huh. James Rosenquist had been. I mean, mm-hmm. he developed a monster set of skills out of that right. apprenticeship. And um, But in the end, I was also you know, the, the, ch- the child of teachers, and I was interested in teaching, and I had a good run with it at SUNY. Mm-hmm. So it made sense to uh, try to find work in that area. Right. So I want to go back to one thing, and maybe then we can kind of segue into teaching. But I was thinking about, like, kind of like how, like that piece that you, 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 uh, was that the, your last year at RISD where you had the Study the for camping? a camping trip, yeah. right. And it's all the very precise things and proportions and how particular you, you seem to kind of insist that things be for that piece. Um, because I feel like that, that precision is like kind of carried through everything you do, you know, in terms of being this collage artist who also is almost like a historian or research, you know? Sure. So, so where does that come from? I'm, I'm curious about the, um, even just doing this tour of your house, yeah. like it feels <laughs> like it, it's like this kind of museum in a way. Um, of possibilities, right? It's like anything can yeah. happen here. So I'm curious how that that part of of your practice of the 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 research of it or the you know that where does that come from? Over the the past uh, let's say twenty or twenty five years of doing public lectures and mm-hmm. doing visiting artists things and stuff. Um, I, I like to think that I never give the same lecture. And I always try to prepare something specific for that group of students or that institution. But for a long time, I would start out my lectures with two things. I would hold up a rock that I found in uh, a riverbed next to my house, which was the perfect size and shape of a brown egg. Uh, I, I don't know that it wasn't like some sort of prehistoric egg, mm-hmm. but more likely it had just been turned in the river in the right way, such that my brother and I would put it in the egg tray in the fridge and sort of surprise our parents, you know? <laughs> or at least they pretended to be surprised right, every right. time. And then I would hold up some piece of technology, and recently it's been a little bell jar with a capacitor made by Sprague Electric, mm-hmm. which you know preceded Mass Mocha that a former student, Rob, Ray, sent to me as a kind of thank you. He found it at Los Alamos. Oh, wow. And so I have this rock shaped by nature and time and this capacitor, which, uh, if you will, sort of duplicates some activities of nature uh, in an electronic item under a little bell jar And I would sort of say to the audience, so this is where my work sort of takes place in between these two poles, Um, the the childhood fascination and and just being in nature all the time, hiking, fishing, camping, hunting, exploring. And then the 
artifact from a profession or let's just call it science, you know, that I would, was not going to be a player in, Mm -hmm. but was still sort of the North star for me in a way. And so science requires a lot of precision. Yeah. Um, And when we think about the word experiment, scientists don't really use the word experiment in the same way. It's not a freewheeling thing of trying things out. It is a plan, a path that you pursue to a conclusion, a result, yes or no. Um, You have to be able to replicate it, right? That's the problem with cold fusion, right? Um, we don't have that same problem in art. I can do mm. cold fusion all day long in art, you know, and make it work. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, I think that the craft that I encountered early on as a reader and the, the, th- the experience of looking at artworks, and I didn't really look at art in museums until I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of wondering, how did they do that? Um, what are the, I mean, I know it's a bunch of chemicals on a sheet of canvas, and I know that there's this frame around it, which has probably been cast, and then pieces of plaster repeated and get assembled, and then they gold leaf it. You know, I, I could figure some things out. But what I couldn't figure out so quickly was the thought process behind getting to that image, let's say, Mm. or that object, if it was something non-narrative, right? I mean, I think the first time you see Donald Judd sculptures, you're kind of blown away by the craft, the repetition, the precision. But then when you get up close, you really see, oh, these aren't made in a factory. They really are handmade. Mm -hmm. And I had a, a great experience of working with some artists early on Um, who made things in profoundly different ways from how I had been learning how art is made. Like um, my sophomore, junior year, I answered an ad in the mailroom at RISD to collaborate or to help an artist do an installation on campus. Uh, I don't think it was called an installation, but an art project. And that artist was Anna Mendieta, who's... Um, speaking of like the minimalists, you know, and, and, and Donald Judge, she was married to Carl Andre. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I showed up with two other students at the Risen Museum, and we spent a weekend mounding up earth and covering it with sod to make a piece called Furrows, which was three sort of connected arcs of grass <clears throat> that one would walk between. And it was sort of a Venus of Willendorf image and a vulva image and a kind of passageway. And, uh, and you know, Mentietta sadly would die from a, a great fall that some people feel like, you know, was murder. Mm-hmm. Um, but I worked with her on one of her last pieces uh, in a way that I had never made art before or never considered how art could be made before. Right. And... In high school, I had worked with a great sculptor, Vermont sculptor named Kate Pond, who worked in welded steel. And uh, I think it's a stretch to call me her studio assistant, but I would work for her occasionally, helping her install things and clean the studio. And So I had a lot of strong women role models as kind of people that I first worked with. And then I ended up working for a lot of my teachers at RISD because I wanted to see how it was done. How do you set up a studio? Mm. 
How do you get a gallery? Um, how do you develop the ideas in your work? Um, uh, you know, the kinds of things that, I mean, I'm not teaching art anymore, but these are the same sort of questions that when I teach grad school, you know, people are still interested in this. How did you get going, right? How did right. you um, find your way to your subject material? And in fact, I was a visiting artist uh, maybe in 2014 or 2015 at the main college of art. And I asked them, I asked the, the faculty, so what do you want me to present to your students? And they said, well, you know, do the slide talk and, and there'll be a lecture and there'll be a live interview thing. And I said, yeah, but what, what do they need? What do you mm-hmm. think they need from me that they might not be able to get from anybody else? And It's generous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I thought so, but they didn't really have an answer. And mm. so I had been, uh, I knew I had a week up there to be in residence and I had an apartment and had some time. And one night I decided, and again, nobody asked me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I decided to think about my, it was at that point, my past three decades of being an artist. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that the first decade would be 1982 through um, 1992, and then 1993 to 2003, and then 2004 through 2014. I guess it was 2014. And I decided to make a list of what I had assumed and what I had learned during each decade. So my first list was things like, um, here, I've got to pause and cast my memory back. Okay, um, things on that first list, I should have printed it out, were like, um, never work in an art, in a museum or a gallery. Uh, You know, never get a job in one of those places. Um, Disregard what the audience thinks. Um, Become a great painter. Uh, Draw every day. Learn to photograph my artwork. Learn to do my taxes, et cetera, et cetera. I think this there were decade twi- one, right? So okay. decade one had twelve points, right? From eighty-two to two thousand two, or, or, or nineteen ninety-two. So decade three had thirteen points. Decade two had thirteen points, which were things like um, become a great artist, um, learn what teachers do um pay somebody to photograph your artwork (laughs) pay somebody to do your taxes consider what the audience feels and knows so a little bit of maturation right Mm -hmm. and then the third decade was things like honor the artist you have become help younger artists uh and those in financial need, build a library, insist on publications, um, make more multiples, collaborate with your heroes, things like that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I did the lecture. I talked about my work, uh, some of the very same things that we talked about tonight, because for the most part, some of these students were only a few years out of undergraduate school to maybe 40 at the oldest. Uh, and then... 
I just decided to, I made copies and I handed out this list and I said, so I'm not saying do these things. What I'm saying or what I'm suggesting is what's your list, Mm -hmm. right? I think it would be worth it over some time to like put this together. So the next day, the um, studio visits start and I have to do eight a day for five Mm. days. Everybody but one person had a list for me. Like, oh my God, that was so great. I went home and I did that. Uh, and, and and people got it. You know, they didn't right. repeat my things. They, they thought about their experience uh, from childhood to undergraduate to now. And, you know, the questions were for myself, what am I doing? Uh, you know, what assumptions did I have? What has changed? Um, how much of me has changed and uh, with deliberation and how much is the culture forcing me to change? Oh, like, regrettably, I've got to do this thing. Like, you know, it's embarrassing, but I still don't have a website. Right? <laughs> I was looking for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's my, my hang up with this. And this is what sometimes kills me in terms of, you know, an audience is that I wanted my website to be an artwork in and of itself. I didn't want it to just be a mechanism for commerce. Right. And so that misguided notion uh, has prevented me from some really great opportunities to make something with some really nice offers from great graphic designers, et cetera. So I feel like in the next year, not the calendar year, but in a year, I would like to have something that is maybe less ambitious, but much more useful to curators and collectors and students, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm always thinking about, especially now that I'm not teaching art students anymore, how can I be in touch with art students and, mm-hmm. and young artists, mm. right? And so anyway, um, those studio visits that week were all framed through that list. It's and, amazing. And I felt like it was uh, the right move. Again, nobody asked for it. Yeah. Um, so lately I've been working on you know, decade four. Mm-hmm. Um, and what and about the student who didn't have one? What about him? I'm assuming it's a him. You know, we, it was a him. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. Uh, it was a, you know, probably 60, 40 female to male population. And, um, you know, we just had a, a regular crit on the work. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe he just understood it like the way that I meant it, which was yeah. like someday put right, this right. together. Yeah. But, you know, and I, I think there weren't 40 students, but there were, uh, I think uh, there were 26 students. Okay. And so 25 had their list to present. And we that's how we began the conversation. And it was great, actually, mm-hmm. because then looking at the work in terms of uh, sort of presumed subject matter, as opposed to, well, you know, there's a difference between what you're making now and where you want to head with something. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people were at that moment in grad school. For me, it came my second semester where I was like, what am I working on? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think I came into this with a body of work that I was pretty proud of. I mean, it got me into school. Yeah, yeah. But um, I'm kind of sitting on that and and staying with that rather than making a radical leap. So and, funny. I and had it's the not same for everybody. Thought. But what's that? I had the same thought my second semester. 
It's, it's like, I, I've talked to a lot of people and, and, you know, if you go the grad school route, there's something about that second semester, which is like you come in with what you were mm-hmm. and then your teachers are like, this is garbage. Exactly. And yeah. then you have to say, well, I'll fight you about that or geez, maybe you're right. Mm-hmm. And I've got to do something. I had that same experience with Joanne Carson mm-hmm. with, um, uh, uh, good grief. Um, Tom. Uh, oh, yeah. Tom. Um, why am I, He's one of my favorite people. Tom O'Connor, of course. Yeah. And um, I mean, O'Con- I put up some, I thought and still think some very beautiful drawings on Mylar that I had been working on. Two sided. Lots mm-hmm. of mixed media. And in the middle of the crit, people are really liking these. O'Connor's like, ah, oh, Oatman, this is such bullshit. You can do these things all day long. And, you know, they're just pretty. Mm-hmm. And I was like, son of a bitch, he's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Joanne Carson came into my studio the first day of school. And I'll never forget a little leopard skin pillbox hat and mm-hmm. leopard skin print like top and <clears throat> kind of comes in the studio. I've got all my work from the woods of Vermont, paintings on metal panels and you know, hundreds of drawings on sheets of paper that's been treated with magnesium and very mm. alchemical. And she comes in and she kind of turns on her heel and says, well, this work is awful, but we've got a lot of time to figure it out. And she spins on her feet and leaves. And I was like, what the hell just happened? That's incredible. Um, really funny. Um, and uh, of course, uh, uh, I think she was to a large extent, right. There were things in there that I wanted to explore more that truly were the best things because they were the least known. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really struggled, I think, as a painter at the graduate level because, um, you know, when the issue is, ah, I got to figure out how to make paintings and not, here's what I want to make work about, you know you're in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think that the... My colleagues around me, even at the undergraduate level, really loved paint. Uh-huh. They were fearless about experimenting with it. Um, uh, I love too many things to focus on paint. Yeah. And, and in the end, I never had that kind of um, vestigial twin kind of situation with the medium mm-hmm. that I think so many people have. And, you know, it's, it's also like, a grind. Like it's, a desire to, to, to master the medium, maybe yeah, in exactly. some way. I mean, I was all about yeah. imagery and how do I deliver an image or a story mm-hmm. or a history. Um, and, of course, you can do that in painting. I mean, I think of... Right. But it doesn't the, need to be a painting. Right. I mean, you know, my, yeah. my painting god was Bellini. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to my mind, the greatest painting that I've ever seen is um, St. Francis in Ecstasy has everything in it I care about, like an accurate representation of plant and animal species, uh, a beautiful perspective with architecture, um, a, a man confronting nature, you know, standing there, um, and a, an exquisite surface, um, uh, scale within the painting that is monumental, but it's not a big painting. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think scale was one of the things that I really have worked hard to get a handle on. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and that sounds like a a, just a merely a formal concern that you can get to. I find a lot of people never figure out scale. Right. 
like not how big should this thing be, but how, how big should the space be or the idea be? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, <clears throat> and, it's a- and in, and in installation, I found a way of working where I could spend the kind of time that somebody like Bellini would spend on a painting a year. Mm-hmm. Right. But I could do it with a room space or an exterior space or learning how to make video or, um, having an idea for, for inserting video into an object. And I had none of those collective skills yet, but had to, through trial and error, you know, make that work. Mm-hmm. And so even though I haven't made a big installation now for almost a decade, um, I did 19 really large pieces in about 20 years. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and and some of those projects, like the crash landed spaceship at Mass Mocha, I worked on for four years. I was working on other projects at the same time. But I think that it's also true that as you get older as an artist, you reckon time in a different way. And I was once talking to a painter. And, how, how do you mean that? Can well, I, I mean, I was once talking to a painter and I said, have you ever worked on a painting for a really long time? And they answered, yeah, I spent like two months on that one. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I was talking about years. Like, if you ever spent a year right. on something, because that's where I was headed at that point, making. I mean, I'm not a durational artist in the way that somebody like Teshing Shea is an artist, or Linda Montana, or some somebody like that. Um, but I, I do make things that often take me a really long time to conceive and execute, and I have to put away, and I come back to. Mm-hmm. I suppose there are many people that work that way. But for me, what happens over time and how your idea gets to change is different than when you're working at high speed and you're trying to crank it out because it's fresh. Right. I think for me... Or there's an excitement to it. I there's guess. an excitement to it. And for me, um, the freshness often happens, or it's happening later and later, Hmm. Where the idea is pretty solid, I collect stuff, I research, I bring it together, I start working, I make some initial stabs, and then it's like, I've got to leave this. Uh-huh. I come back to it after travel, which is not so much lately, but um, but then it shifts again. It's still the same project, but, you know, I've changed. Right. And so um, my relationship with the narrative has changed my relationship with the with the viewers changed like i want more for my viewer i mean that's why i call the collage library the archive mm-hmm. o u r c h i v e i mean that is 4000 books that <clears throat> have largely been published between 1900 and i don't know 1980 because i use mostly color hand-painted illustrations. Maybe that's part of me that's still clinging to being a painter. Like, right. I'm not using <laughs> that, ph- photography. But That's the piece. But those are, you know... When you say you want more out of the viewer, what do, what do you mean by that? Like, in terms of how they're interacting with I, the I, work? I, I, I think I meant more for the viewer. More for the viewer. Right. I mean, I don't know. I was I'm very nicely honored at the Art Institute... I'm sorry, the Institute of History and Art... Um, a couple of years ago, when my mom had 
moved in with me. It was like yeah. sort of the last thing we had done together was we went to this gala. Mm-hmm. She dressed up, you know, a month before she died. I was in a tux. And oh. Lots of friends were there, and I was being honored as the, their spotlit artist for their fundraiser. And uh, I had to give a little speech, and I talked about my friend Don Clements, who was in very ill health, but who had introduced me to so many great films. And and uh, and I was sort of improving some of this, but I said, uh, all of a sudden, uh, so I spend a great deal of time in my studio, and I spend a great deal of time teaching. Uh, and a great deal of time reading. But I think more than any of that, I spend more time being a viewer. Mm. And that was kind of a, a, you know, I mean, I was for the first time using a camera because it came with my phone. I was Mm -hmm. never a photographer. Mm. And I was looking at the world in a new way. Um, I was making humorous photos again. Mm -hmm. I was documenting things in series I was doing my research, like when I went out to uh, Purdue, you know, at the invitation to look at the Neil Armstrong stuff, um, this huge archive, this was my tool as I looked at, I mean, there were 300,000 things. I looked at maybe 5,000 things over a year and a half. And um, this was a great notebook. Um, But I was being a viewer. I was Mm -hmm. being a critical viewer. And I think that part of what we can do as artists is to, and, and this isn't about um, people being poor viewers or being clueless or anything mm. like that, um, but I really feel like I've had these guides to the world through art and through artists. It has been a profound experience for me, and I want to be able to um, pass along that experience on some level through my own work. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm first going to do that by being a viewer and encountering these things and filing them away. And if that's like just in my brain or if that's in the archive or in file folders, and that stuff all comes out later on in the collages or the installations or, I mean, as you saw, I'm actually making some sculpture now, which I yeah. never make. Um, and, uh, I think that I've appreciated being guided through challenging viewing situations by artists, by mm-hmm. teachers, by experts, um, and and even by people who don't spend their time kind of draped in art, but who are just great observers mm-hmm. and just make these pronouncements. And so um, uh, I guess it's just wanting my viewers to have the same sense of wonder and, and, uh, and excitement that I have when I'm tracking something down, mm-hmm. when I'm encountering it for the first time. You know, because as you said earlier, I think you said, use the word like it's exciting. Right? Yeah. How do you sustain excitement? Mm-hmm. Right. How do you, I want to make those things that people come back to year after year and look at uh, the way that I do with my favorite artworks. I was talking with my friend Frank Owen, who was my colleague at the University of Vermont, great painter who shows at Nancy Hoffman. I think he's been with her for 45 years. Yeah. Like, incredible, that kind of dialogue. And uh, 
I was talking about the first time I saw Demoiselle d'Avignon by Picasso. Like, I knew enough about art history my freshman year to know that that painting was probably right around the corner. And, and every time I go to MoMA, I spend time in front of it. And Frank said, you know, I think I've looked at that painting for 24 hours total. And I said, yeah, I think I'm up to like eight hours. Mm-hmm. I see it every time I go to MoMA. I anticipate it. It always changes for me. It's a, it's a punch in the gut every time. And, and that gut punch has become more complicated over time because of colonialism and because of, you know, attribution. And, uh, you know, my colleague at the University of Vermont, Janie Cohen, has tracked down photographs of African women holding up African masks in these positions that Picasso might have seen. Wow. So it's maybe even more of a record than an invention. Uh-huh. And to me, that only makes it richer because it's not Picasso's painting. It's our painting. Right. Right. It's like for good or bad, everybody has a stake in that. Mm -hmm. Because it's out there. Because it's out there and you have to deal with it. And because it's been dealt with and put on a pedestal in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And for for authorship or for... um, uh, I mean, for the you know, since the arguments started in the '80s about cultural appropriation, and even though they were part of conversations for much longer than that, um, uh, I was making things that were using other image makers' images. So I was just as guilty as anybody else of, mm. of appropriation. Um, but we say, well, we're doing it for these reasons, you know, et cetera. Um, in the end. I've been placed in this world, uh, and I really am excited by what I find, and I want to do something with that. I want to comment on it, and um, and every once in a while, you get to make a an image or an object that has an encounter which feels like a shock for you, and it's really hard to surprise yourself, especially Mm -hmm. the longer that you make this work, but. uh, it happens to me as a viewer all the time. Yeah. You know, it happens with the latest 22-year-old artist making something amazing. It happens with, you know, Michael Snow's films. It happens with, um, uh, you know, just when you think that cinema has exhausted itself, some new voice comes along and it's totally mm-hmm. exciting again. Right. Um so, so that's why I've always been interested in sort of the long game of making art. And if it takes me six years to make something, mm-hmm. that's just what it takes. Right. Um, these collages that you've seen in the studio that are going to be up at the Albany Airport really kind of exploded between February and early May. And they were fast moving. They were almost dumb in their origins. But then something happened when... <laughs> I be, you know, <laughs> they they they've started to work on me in ways that were were not happening when I made them. Yeah, but I guess on some level they must have been communicating what needed to be done with the imagery. And so now I've started a bunch of other projects where two things that I found next to each other I'm just putting together to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it's like when I first encountered collage as an undergraduate. Um, it's it took me by storm, mm-hmm. and and I love that that can still happen. Yeah, that's amazing. 
I think it's a good place to stop, Michael. Great. <laughs> Great. I think we've said it all. Well, um, you know, I think um, I appreciate that you did some some research. Some digging. Uh, and, um, I normally don't. Well, you know, if, there, if there's ever a part two to this, it would be mm-hmm. great fun to talk about, you know, the last 20 years as mm. opposed to the first 20. I'd because love to. I think that um, uh, what I'm discovering now as an older artist who's had health challenges and who's lost family members at this point and who's even lost former students, right, mm. and people my own age— um, that uh, you know the the forces that shape the work have grown broader for me, and for the past ten years I've been writing these one-page sort of art stories that are um, about artists I've met, uh, teachers, uh, collectors, and curators, um, things I've encountered in the world bad choices, you know, missteps, um, dangerous experiments with materials. I mean, I used to work with aluminum Mm. and sanded it, you know, without a respirator. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm now learning how that's a, you know, a gateway to Alzheimer's, right? Oh, my God. And, um, uh, you know, luckily I, I figured that out pretty early that I should be wearing some protective gear. But, you know, these... These, I, I call them origin stories, uh, really fly in the face of what I thought were the very linear influences on my work. And it turns out, you know, that those are as varied as life itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, again, trying to uh, be more generous with myself as a viewer. Like, you know, what do I th- think, if I'm really honest, is getting in here and what is shaping this? And... I, f- I find that I'm working back to a place that I was in my 30s when I stopped using the word artist for a while mm. because I thought it was limiting me. Because I felt I was operating sometimes like a private detective Interesting. or uh, a, a researcher or um, uh, an outdoorsman. Mm-hmm. And those... Um, For some reason, at that time, I felt the need to let go of artist as a term. And and then I came back and fully embraced it. Um, Now I think I'm headed in even another direction because, you know, truly I spend a lot of time being a teacher. Mm -hmm. And my work with my students has both expanded my studio practice and limited it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I used to be just a machine in terms of quantity. Yeah. But I like to think that now maybe, you know, the pieces are becoming more kind of thoughtful and um uh and I'm and I'm willing to kind of step outside the rules that I've set for myself that really I adhered to pretty strongly for a long time. Hmm. I think the I don't know if you saw the regional a few years ago, but that piece with all the circles, thousands of circles. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it contains mostly photographs, and I never work with photographs. Right, right. And that was a, a discovery. Like, I found a way of working with photographs that was good for me. And what it did, actually, was the exact opposite of the collage work over the years, where I would take discrete images from hundreds of sources and combine them in one picture. 
this was taking images from hundreds of sources and keeping them separate. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't think I would have the the stomach for that kind of complete switch. Yeah. Uh, but it's been a great sort of new door unlocking. Hmm. So uh, that's why I sometimes advocate for a part two for this. Part <laughs> no, <laughs> let's, uh, let's do it. We'll do it uh, towards the end of the year. Or maybe in five years. Who knows? It's nah, up to you. Up to you. I, you have a good, um, I think that's a good teaser. So Well, well, we'll they were it. great questions. And oh. um, uh, I, I see why people like doing this so much. And I also see kind of how needed it is. Yeah, um, well, yeah. Because sometimes when we do the, the slideshow or the video tour, it's I made this and I made this and mm -hmm. I made this and here's what it looks like. Yeah. Rather than getting to kind of dig down into the psychology of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I see it as like an archive, you know? Yeah. It's, it's what well, I, I do love an archive. <laughs> now you're in it. Well, thank you, Michael. Thanks again. Thank you. And we'll be back. Town is engineered and produced by Silent Studios North with exclusive theme music by Fantagram and this month with frog noises recorded by my neighbor Ben. Thank you, Ben. <laughs>